It's episode 29 of the Game Ology Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Matthew Falvi. And I am Attila Gabriel Rietzky. Attila, when you typed to me, when you typed to me in that accent, is how I read it, what the topic was going to be. I read it aloud a couple times. I copy and pasted it back to you in case you made a typo. Why don't you explain to me what we're talking about? Okay, so the, I think what I wrote to you and what I can see is probably a little confusing for like um, somebody who's not familiar with how games are programmed is... Um, it's a nice way of saying idiot. <laughs> well, no, because that would be like a general ignorance kind of thing. This is not something that I would expect you to be familiar with. Um, the subject like that it. I pitched was uh, game states and sequence breaking, yeah, which yeah. are going to be terms that you're probably more familiar with if you're like a dedicated speedrunner or you follow a lot of speedruns. I mean, game state, I thought emulation, saving things, and then sequence Save breaking. State, yeah. I thought this sounds like a board game I don't want to play. <laughs> right. So that we what we settled on was the sort of more consumer-friendly title of behind the scenes on speedrunning. Mm. Yes. Uh, now that I get. So yeah. we're talking about speedrunning. I know how to do one speed run. I watched it on a, a Game Informer Extra Life stream, and they brought a guy in, and this is a glitch speed run. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, I'm not, not going to go through all the details here, but you get to the first part of the castle. You have you're to. Talking av- about, you're talking about Link to the Past. Zelda, Link to the Past. Thank you for clarifying. So you, get, you have to avoid being hit. You have to get up to a top level of the castle. You have to jump off. In midair, you need to pause, save, and quit. You need to repeat that sequence without getting hit. I think you need to save and quit about two or three times. You get to another spot. You need to go up to a wall. A guard hits you. You go into the wall, and then you can scroll through that wall mm-hmm. and scroll some screens. As l- and you can kind of see Link a little bit. And what you can end up doing is just going up and up and up. It scrolls through about five screens vertically. You go past Ganon twice. Game over. Right. So what they're taking advantage of in this particular speed run that you're describing is um, like clipping through load zones. Like very specifically, you know, um, the way that a lot of games are written is to be like as efficient as possible, right? Especially professional game developers are super concerned with efficiencies and with efficiency. And that means they're making a lot of assumptions. Um, so with with those assumptions, you can usually make safe assumptions about where the player is during normal gameplay. Um, obviously, the player should not be inside of a wall. Right. There are certain circumstances which can put the player into the wall. It's not something that should happen ever. Um, so because it's not something that's meant to happen, they're not necessarily anticipating. They're not writing the game to account for the fact that that can happen. They're not creating a doorway that says this doorway only works if the player is not inside of a wall. They would they would be so inefficient to check that because that's an error state in the game and that's never something that should be happening. Therefore, if you're checking it 99% of the time, it's not necessary. So that door only cares with the fact that you are um, interacting with it. It doesn't care about the fact that you are where you're supposed to be or not. Um, add to that the fact that specifically with Link to the Past, all of the screens in that game, all the like levels, the overworld, everything, um, all specifically interior areas are mapped to a array. They're all like physically next to each other in game space. So that if you were to um, like zoom the camera out on a specific level, you would actually see that like, oh, this cavern is next to this cavern and they've probably created some kind of tapestry where 
odd shaped dungeons all fit on one huge map again to try and save space and consolidate mm -hmm. things you can especially imagine especially being in a cartridge format at exactly the time. yeah so they're, they're trying to put everything into a two-dimensional array um, which is just a continuous stream of game memory taking a bit of a step back basically when a computer has to save a value it is written into a location in memory and obviously memory occurs in a continuous stream and you can have individual variables which are saved into individual places on that memory or you can have an array which is a allocated block of memory it's a chunk uh where you're expecting to have a lot of like similarly grouped variables like linked together and for say for things like the overworld of the game it makes a lot of sense to store that in a two-dimensional array you have a x and a y position and you can imagine like a grid like a spreadsheet where you have position 0 0 0 1 0 2 0 3 position 1 1 1 2 1 3 1 4 and then so on like building out a whole um series of rows and columns by getting all of the game data onto a map like that it just makes it a lot easier for the system to jump in memory all you have to do is say, when you go through this door, we're going up one in terms of the rows, or we're going over one in terms of the columns. And it makes it easy for the game to access that data. Um, but it also means that you can exploit it, because if you end up inside of the walls, then suddenly, if the game's no longer checking collisions, because that's another thing, the walls are not solid. Um, the insides of the walls are not solid. Obviously, the walls are solid. You can't go through them. But... Once the player has entered into the wall, um, the assumption is that you shouldn't be doing collision checking anymore. The walls are basically paper thin. You can get something to clip you through the walls by pushing you further than they expect the player to be mm -hmm. able to move. Right. Um, In that case, a guard hits Link when he's up against the wall. And right. Because normally when you're doing collision checking, you're looking at um, what, the, the maximum speed that a character can move Let's say it's measured in pixels. Um, let's say that uh, Link to the Past is probably running on a, a grid, like a game grid size of like 24 pixels by 24 pixels, um, which means that if a wall is 24 pixels wide, then in a single game step, one frame to the next, Link should not, should not be moving more than 24 pixels because if Link is in like slot A and there's a wall in slot B and then there's empty space behind that wall in slot C, then if Link is moving more than 24 pixels per step, per frame, then that means he can go straight from slot A to slot C and just bypass slot B because he like... In one frame, he's in slot A, and the next frame, the game moves him by that amount of pixels, and he completely bypasses the thing in between. There's never an opportunity for the game to say, like, oh, wait a second, you're inside or partially inside the wall. Let me bump you back out. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, actually. So that, that's, I, I, that's I, how you get these, like, clipping issues. Yeah, I'd, I'd never thought that it would be laid out in that way. It reminds me of uh, the first Metal Gear games before Solid... <clears throat> on NES and like whatever Japanese computer they were making them on, how they would have these sort of like, well, and even the first Zelda, it was yeah. all like these, the whole thing was just square, 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 yep. square. So that would make sense that Link to the Past would definitely have that that format. Yeah, it's just a, it's an efficient way to lay out the maps. And then once you sort of clip through that barrier, once you get outside um, 
you know, collisions are actually a relatively uh, processor intensive um, or like an expensive operation. You would refer to something that's costly, that takes a lot of resources to do. So you want to be doing as little collision detection as possible, which is why you have these relatively thin barriers. And then even if it looks like the wall goes on for some uh, indeterminate um, length, and it looks like there's an image of the wall there or whatever, it's a, it looks like brick, but it's actually empty. It's just a picture. It has no physical volume because you're trying to, you, you don't want to be checking the collision for where the player is never supposed to be. So once you get out of bounds, you can stay out of bounds as long as you don't go back in bounds because then the collision checking snaps back on and starts working again. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how, like a, a combination of these two factors means that you can get bumped out of normal game space. You're going inside the wall. Um, the collision de- detection stops working and you're able to just walk straight up through the walls um, past all the different phases of this Ganon fight and then just like right into the final room of the game. Yeah, or, uh, I mean, I had something like that in uh, Dark Souls 3, mm-hmm. just falling through the ground, and then I, because of the nature of Dark Souls 3, yeah. I thought, is this some sort of netherworld where I'm supposed <laughs> to be? But you realize, like, okay, I can't hit anybody anymore, but it's the same thing. Or it's like, you look at uh, early PlayStation 1 games and 64 yeah. games, those 3D worlds, you go up to a wall, if you tilt the camera around, yeah. you can see right through the wall, because it's, it's not actually safe. a thick wall, exactly. it's just it's just a facade. Yeah, because why would they spend the intensive like resources necessary to render a like um, a wall that actually has mass behind it? You know, yeah. even in games today... Um, cameras can still clip through walls because everything is just a paper-thin mesh. And it can also be useful as well. I mean, you don't want a wall blocking your view. If the camera goes behind the player, it's a good rule of thumb to make everything transparent. Yeah, you need anyway. to do some kind of occlusion to make sure that the, the wall is like made invisible so it's not blocking the player's perspective. Right. So then it, when you start breaking it down like that, it makes sense why if you're going to play a game like an o- a Bethesda game, for mm-hmm. example... Uh, there's just so much to account for that yeah. you're going to obviously have these variables that they could never imagine what you're going to do with the combinations of the thousands of different items and Absolutely. areas you can be. Yeah, and that's that's um, like you end up like in the example where you you were mentioning in Dark Souls, like falling into another area and then you can't hit anything. It's because the game was probably set up with certain barriers, like physical trigger points. Um, like you round a corner and you hit an invisible barrier. As a player, you have no knowledge of this. Um, you hit some barrier that like deactivates AI in one region and activates AI in another region. And then suddenly enemies will start responding and seeking out the player and all these kind of things. Again, they're making assumptions of the fact that like if you're in area B, you can't get to area Darn, I started with B. Uh, if you're in area A, sorry, and you end up in area C, there's no way you could get to C without traversing B. Mm. And then there's like some, let, let's say that area B is even just like some small passageway, some small tunnel, but the, there's some trigger that you're going to walk past in B that's going to disable all the AI um, and like drawing of enemies and advanced stuff that they can drop that out of memory in A, and then you end up in C. Right, so it's about the journey, not the destination. <laughs> well, the um, it just doesn't make sense to be doing, like even if you're not traversing a load zone, if you're not going through a door or something, um, it makes sense to have that, uh, like the physical game environment loaded into memory, because you don't want um, 
walking from one place to another to suddenly trigger a lag spike while the game tries to start loading in a whole bunch of resources. So that area is loaded, but then when you are, um, like while you're walking around the game, you don't want AI that are like some significant distance away from the player to be active and their pathfinding to be operating and all that kind of stuff. So you you have the physical, like, the game looks like it's loaded, but you haven't traversed that particularly important barrier to, like, activate the AI. I think it would actually be really fascinating to look at some of these um, AAA games and see where some of these barriers, um, these invisible trigger points actually are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, sometimes you can work backwards. Sometimes you can make um, guesses as to, like, oh, um I'm coming through a narrow hallway that blocks my view of the zone I was just in. They're probably dropping that zone out of memory yeah. and they're loading the next one in. And if you, especially if they didn't do it perfectly, you'll, you'll notice like a single frame, maybe like dip some sort of like skip in the game frame rate. And that's just like the, the small feeling of one area dropping out and another area loading in. Mm. Um, yeah, sometimes you can, even if you can't see it, you can find where that line is. Oh, wow. Really? Like a real simple version of that was in Castlevania Symphony of the Night, where you would connect to a different part of the castle and you would go through these very, very quiet hallways that were about just big enough for your character to go through. Kind of, if you've ever played Metroid for the NES, it's Mm -hmm. about that size. Just enough for your character to go through, no music, no sound effects, no enemies, nothing. And it would just say CD above it. And that was their way of doing of loading these yeah. new levels. And it was a really clever idea because that game felt very fluid. Mm-hmm. Uh, the animation felt really good. And the control was nice. And I would think most people, after you've played that game for any length of time, you would just turn them around backwards and do a backslide <laughs> through there just because that felt so good and, and it seemed to move the fastest. So, And that seems to be, especially now that we're installing games onto the hard drive, and yeah. the disc is basically there just as, as a protection against copyright, yeah. that this is all being streamed or loaded off of the drive. So yeah, you've got to watch out for those little hallways. And well, it, it is way, way faster to be like reading media out of a hard drive than it is off of a CD. Yeah. Like okay. the, the optical read speed is like so far below what it is to read off a hard drive platter. And then you've got like solid state media, like a flash drive or something that's even faster than that. So that's why the Nintendo switch has me very excited because you know, loading speed is going to be like blazing fast because you're just reading from this little solid state chip. Yeah, that could be that could be a definite plus of that. I mean, one big problem obviously is that how much are they going to be holding in terms of gigabytes? Mm. Because I mean, it's it's not uh it's not out of the ordinary for a game install size on a PS4 and Xbox one to be 50 60 gigabytes. Yeah. So they would have to be some it could, it'll be be like going back to the N64 and Super Nintendo days where these different cartridges maybe cost different amounts of money. Yeah, no, it's definitely true that like it's it's going to be um, more expensive to produce the cartridges. Although now we're at a time where you know you can get a chip the size of your thumbnail that holds 32 gigs and it's not even that expensive. Okay. Um, so a, a chip the size of what, what the NX thing like looks like is probably going to be able to hold sufficient data for like whatever developers want to be able to do with it. And then hopefully they don't have to um see this is the thing is that even if there's enough redundant space on one of these cartridges um that they don't have to take these 
these uh, efficiencies are more than just shortcuts. They're the exact opposite. They are making games far more difficult to program. And it's in that programming obscurity that all these like weird bugs and glitches start to happen. Um, like when I was starting to program my games, like for the very first time, I had made, I would make games that had like, you know, things that didn't work in ways I expected, but they were pretty simple bugs, you know, like you, you shoot an enemy and they fall through the floor because I forgot to um, enable collision detection for the enemy's hit animation, like simple stuff like that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like <laughs> you're like forgetting a bracket when you're coding web pages. No, no because that'll crash. That'll well for a web page, it's not going to crash anything. Web pages are kind of weird in that they'll just run anything even if it's broken. Um, but in in a game, um, you know, if you leave a, a comma out of something or a parentheses off the end of a function call, you'll get a physical error. Like the the game cannot advance because um, you, you you've typed some bit of code incorrectly now as a coder do you prefer that because you have a fail-safe way of knowing where the problem is oh absolutely my my god there's um again if if you run a game in html5 it doesn't throw an error because of the nature of html it'll just keep running and you have all these weird artifacts cropping up because you didn't type a function call correctly but the game's just going to ignore that and keep trying to like uh, limp onwards but um the far more insidious like those are those are easy to diagnose because the game says oh you forgot a comma here's the line here's the thing you need to open up it tells you exactly where that error is that's great um but if you write this like far more insidious kind of bug like let's say i create an enemy and i give it gravity so it's moving downwards uh and i, I make it so that it's solid so that it interacts with physical volumes um, but then I shoot it and it triggers an enemy die animation. Um, the enemy die animation inherits the gravity from the enemy, but it may not inherit the solid quality. So suddenly I shoot an enemy and it still has gravity, but it's not solid. So now it's clipping through the floor and that's mm. not an error. I haven't like made a syntax error. I haven't typed something incorrectly. Um, for all the game knows, that's what I wanted to have happen. But it is a glitch. It is a bug because that's not my that's not what I wanted to have happen. Um, and those are the kinds of mistakes you make when you're first starting out with programming. There are those like more sort of simple issues of like um, parameters inher inheriting incorrectly or just you know those are at least the those are at least the kind of bugs that I encountered when I was first programming. Well, yeah, but it's not. I mean, you can say that when you first started programming, but we've obviously seen no shortage of of bugs in the most expensive games around the world. And it's, it's because games are, I mean, a lot of, a lot of these big mainstream games have taken to the open world approach. You look at a lot of big Ubisoft games, yeah. or you mentioned Bethesda and it's, and also games being put out on a schedule and maybe not the, not the ability to find everything that's wrong with it, but maybe just not the ability to find everything wrong with it in the allotted time. Right. Or just even the time to deal with some of those bugs. There's yeah. like very often people will play a game and they'll complain like, how didn't they bug test this? How did they not find this issue? And it's like, well, yeah, they did find it, but it was like deemed non-critical to game function. So they just ignored it. Mm -hmm. um, you can also have the, the issue, as you mentioned, with like time constraints of like there were other more critical bugs they needed to solve. Yeah, I think sometimes they pick a, a release date and they start the marketing machine and they put a lot of money into the marketing of it and they want it to hit a certain day and yeah. they're afraid of delaying the game. So they'll just fix what they can, send it out. and then. But now what you have is that 
day one patches yeah. have have just become a part of the of the cycle of making a game. So you're they're probably basically expecting there to be problems when they send it out and then fix it before it hits hits yeah, the pretty stores. Much, pretty much. Um, just uh, going back to what I was saying though, like so you start out programming, you make the kinds of errors that I was describing. Um, then you get to sort of like where at least I, I reached a sort of intermediate phase of programming where I made a game called Robo's World, The Blue Light Rocks. And I consider that game to be almost airtight. I'm not saying that there aren't a few small bugs or unexpected behaviors, but there's no way to like break the game. Um, there's just because everything that I wrote in that game is not efficient. Um, all that stuff I was saying about you don't check collisions when the players are inside the wall because you'd never expect them to you know be there. I am doing those collision checks. I am like doing everything to this like super redundant level where the game runs fine because it's a very simple game. Um, but I didn't know enough about good programming practice to not do all this ridiculous like mm. overhead inducing stuff. So as a result, it ends up being a very like bug free kind of game, or at least the kind of game where you can't exploit it and um, have something interesting happen for like the longest time in that game you could get bumped into a wall, but then because the collision detection didn't stop while you were in the wall, you would just be stuck in the wall forever. That's terrible. That doesn't help you in any way. It doesn't help you exploit or get around a load zone or any of that kind of stuff. So this sounds like something that a lot of self-taught programmers probably, probably like a pretty common issue that they would hit is that this um, programming in the way you think would make the most logical sense. Mm -hmm. I'm going to account for every single problem that could happen. But in reality, you're saying that after you've after you've progressed, it's pretty common to go to this more efficient manner, and yeah. which again makes me you think of to. Bethesda games, where the only way they can make this whole world work is mm -hmm. if they're cutting those corners in that way. Otherwise, because I've heard some people, um, some some North American developers, have yeah. talked to say Japanese developers. Yeah, they were working. It was somebody who had a team over from Square work on a trailer, mm -hmm. and they said they couldn't believe the way they did animation. They said mm -hmm. these guys were spending ten times longer doing everything. It looked amazing. Mm -hmm. I mean, you look at a game like Final Fantasy XIII. It looks yeah. incredible, but it takes, like, is it really worth it? I mean, do you really want to be waiting 10 years for a Final Fantasy game? Looks great, mm -hmm. but, you know, is that time better spent elsewhere? Well, this is more from the perspective of, like, these these kinds of efficiencies and assumptions that you are including when you're building a game. You have to put those in because, like, you look at games that come out towards the beginning of a console cycle and towards the end of a console cycle. Fundamentally, the hardware hasn't changed. Mm. They might have made some improvements to the firmware and they, the, 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 the way that a game can talk to the game hardware and the way they're able to utilize that hardware. You're going to get some improvements in there. The main improvements you're going to get are like um, th being able to sort of cheat stuff. Like if you look in the distance of an open world game, things are going to be like you know, paper cut out sort of 2D billboarded effect is what it's referred to as. Um, but stuff up close in modern gen looks amazing, like super detailed, super realistic. Um, and the thing is that, you know, last gen, you had the same thing. You had stuff in the distance looking flat in 2D and then stuff, stuff super up close looking pretty darn good and we just we keep improving on the things that matter most and the things that matter most are what the player can see up close um 
So these kinds of efficiencies, whether you're trying to get a game to run on a console with limited specs, for goodness sake, when you're trying to get a game to run on a PC with a wide variety of specs where you have to account for all the differences in like hardware and what consumers can afford and like what kind of computer can actually run this game, you know, you, you limit your um, game's potential reach by what computers are able to run your game. Mm-hmm. So you have to make your game as efficient as possible, which means making these assumptions. Sure. And we're reaching a nice sweet spot where for the last, it seems like the the x86 architecture is becoming quite standardized. Yeah. And that's going to be, that's only good news for gamers because it's putting everybody on the same page. Um, I mean, you found, say, the PS3 had a, a much more different. Uh, yeah, uh, the cell processor. Yeah. But for studios that got to know mm-hmm. that, I mean, you saw an example, you saw Uncharted, what mm-hmm. Naughty Dog was doing, and especially with The Last of Us, like you're saying, coming yeah. at the end of the console cycle, a team that only didn't have to worry about porting any of that code over yeah. so that it worked on PC or Xbox, and they're able to accomplish some great things. But it's, yeah, in the interest of efficiency, I, I like that everything is getting a bit more standardized. Absolutely. It's, it's only good for everybody. Yeah. Because, um, you know, at, at least the very, we, we don't have to worry about stuff um, like they used to in the days of like when they were making Game Boy games. Like if you've ever seen a speed run of Pokemon Blue where you can beat the game in like less than 20 minutes, um, it takes advantage of the fact that in a lot of these like early cartridges, not only is stuff stored in array, like the map is stored on an array, but like the, you can actually start breaking out of the game and like, uh, remember how I said an array is a series of memory which is allocated for something in particular? How could I forget? <laughs> Let's say that if I allocate eight bytes to store the character's name, um, then I allocate something else in bytes, you know, nine through 18 and so on and so forth. I'm allocating things in um, eight byte chunks. So value goes from zero to 255. If I start filling up... Um, that array if i start like overflowing the value it starts leaking over into other areas of the game's memory and usually that can cause a crash but in some of these old cartridge-based games you could just start basically writing arbitrary code to different parts of the memory which is how somebody managed to like create the game snake in super mario world because they were just able to access the debug menu and just start writing direct values to the memory do you have a guess of uh, how big a typical Game Boy cartridge was? Oh, uh, was it? It's like, I don't know. Is it even a megabyte? It, well, it ranges actually from 56 kilobytes up to two megabytes. Okay. So I wasn't ones. too far off. That is insane. Yeah. So the, the amount of efficiency that was necessary to reduce a game to that, like I can open up uh, Game Maker Studio, which is what I use most often for games. I can create a blank empty project and hit compile and it will generate like a five megabyte file. Like it'll okay. be it'll be empty, but that's just like the the raw data that is associated with like making a game in Game Maker is gonna take up at least that much space. Mm. So it would be it would be impossible to try and create a game that only takes up that much space. Since we're sort of getting into the, the coding side of things and I obviously don't really know a lot about it, if if somebody was gonna approach Game Maker, how much how much of a base level of coding would they need to have? I mean, Game Maker is great in terms of like being able to um, simplify so many things. Like when I was talking about all this efficiency stuff, you're not super concerned with it in Game Maker because you're not. Um, if you've ever heard the expression "close to the metal," no. 
Uh, okay, so your computer that we're recording this on right now uh, is running a processor. That's the silicon, that's the metal. So the closer you are to the processor level, uh, I mean, above the processor, above the raw zeros and ones that are churning away to make this recording happen right now, you have a uh, intermediate layer of like assembly language. And then above that, you've got something else that's talking to the OS and you have the actual operating system. And then you have the program that we're recording this in. Okay. So, so we're we very are, far from we're the metal? far from the metal, right? And GameMaker is very far from the metal. You're mm. not writing actual memory addresses. You're not dealing with that low level code. You're dealing with things that are very high level. It's like mm. using WordPress. It's more plug and play or Pretty Squarespace. Much, yeah. But it has an, the ability to go in and, and tweak it if you did know coding? Um, yeah, you can, you can definitely, you start at something that's incredibly high level in terms of just like drag and drop simplified stuff and then you can go in and start writing code and in the newer versions of the program they're introducing like more and more low level functions um but it's still game maker is uh, a tool for making games it's effectively an engine it's effectively something that somebody else has created a simplified set of languages so that you don't have to worry about all those low, low level details the compiler and the program will take care of that for you they'll take the code that you've written and say oh that's cute let me look at what you're actually doing here and write this right. turn this into real code um and that's what it does for you um and that's how you can make a game that runs much better in the modern iterations of game maker because originally it used to just all run on java and it would just basically take all of your game assets and just sandwich it onto a layer that um was so loosely defined that you could actually make um arbitrary you could make uh arbitrary change to the game while it was running because it just didn't care it's like oh you've added a resource to the game as far as the engine as, as far as the runner was concerned adding a game adding a resource to your game at runtime was the exact same as adding it at compile time so it made it possible to do some incredibly crazy hack things that were completely at the cost of efficiency but now the newer versions of the program are much more strict you can't do compile time resource adding um anyway so going back to cartridges i just wanted to go over like a little bit more in terms of the behind yeah. the scenes on like how that kind of um the the speed runs are are possible so we got into a bit of the like stuff in pokemon um in terms of causing this kind of buffer overflow stuff when you start um writing arbitrary values in the game the way that works is uh let's say you have a pokeball that has an item id of zero uh probably isn't probably it's something else than that probably like zero through ten are reserved for things that the player never sees um and then let's say like a great ball has a value of two and then an ultra ball has a value of three potion has a value of four super potion has a value of five and like so on you go on in this pattern that every single item that the player sees has an internal id um when you start uh using some of these exploits in the game where you uh, are overflowing a value you can use these items and their internal ids to start putting values where they don't belong um, but they're values that still make sense to the game because where it expects the ID of a level or an overworld location that is a number, it's getting the value of a like Pokeball, which is still a number. So the compiler's like, or the, not the compiler, sorry, the, the game looking through and saying, okay, you want me to go to room Pokeball? Well, I understand a Pokeball as one, so you want me to go to room one. Okay, I have no problem with that. 
And that's where you would get a lot of the crazy um, like level skips that possible in Pokemon. Um, like, you know, you want me to go to the champion room? Okay. Um, I guess that means you beat the game. Because, you know, even if the programmers put in some sort of check of like in Pokemon, you have to beat the Elite Four and then you go to like the end like room in the game and then you get the recording that says, hooray, congratulations, let's immortalize your Pokemon team and say that you beat the game. Um, if they were to put in some kind of check of like, did you actually beat the game? Are you supposed to be here? It wouldn't do them any good to put that check into the game because, okay, let's say that check fails. What do you do? Does, does you have like a line of text that appears at the bottom of the screen? It's like you shouldn't be here, and right. then kicks the player out. Which and is kind of something you, you would see uh, that Undertale was playing around with too. Yeah, they, they he did a lot of stuff in terms of like including these edge cases, and like the character appears to you and says, "Hey, this isn't supposed to happen." So you're probably a dirty hacker, aren't you? I think that's actually the line in the game. Yeah, and uh, one one instance I found even very early on is after the first encounter and then starting the game again and knowing how the first encounter is going mm -hmm. to go, changing my actions a bit and the character being aware of it. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I mean, that's, that's something that I think anyone can appreciate, but especially if you're familiar with the term safe scumming yeah. and you've have gamed for any amount of time, I think kind of hits a little closer to home. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll round out this podcast with like one personal experience I had with these kind of uh, game state things. Um, when I was creating my latest game, Robo's World Zarnok Fortress, I have a big thing about uh, you can go to any room on the ship and go back and forth between any room on the fortress. Um, that meant that once you complete the sort of intro to the game, uh, the first 10 levels, that there is a door that goes from the fortress back onto the sort of um, the, the ship where the first 10 levels take place. So that door uh, is a one-way door because I don't want the player to be able to bypass the fight at the end of the ship to get onto that door. Uh, and then they would like physically drop down and they would have to do that fight again to get back onto the fortress. So what I ended up realizing is that the player can spawn a sentry, which is like they if they walk in the way of a worker, it calls in a sentry. And the sentry flies around and starts shooting at the player as a like deterrent. Like, you've been spotted. This is your punishment. You have to deal with this. Um, because sentries can fly and they try to, like, sort of stay at the, like, eye level of the player, both so that they get a good shot at you and so that you can shoot them, um, you can get right up close to a sentry and hop on it. And if you jump, it tries to move up. And you can get this sort of thing going where you jump and the sentry moves up and then you jump and you can just sort of keep on hopping on it forever. It's really hard because the thing is always trying to move to one side of you. So you have to keep on flipping left and right. But I found a way that you could um, keep hopping on the sentry and get up to that door before you fight the enemies that would allow you to actually get onto the fortress. Okay. This isn't a version of the game that I've patched since because I realized this was a potential exploit, but I didn't lock the door because I didn't think it was possible to get up there until I realized that you could do the sentry hopping exploit to get up there. It's not an exploit. I deliberately left this in. Um, but it became an exploit because of the way that you could get onto the fortress before the game state ticks over and says start the countdown, you only have 30 minutes until the fortress arrives at your home planet. Right. So because the expected way that the player was going to get into the fortress was by accessing a terminal which triggers a cutscene and lets you onto the fortress, all that sort of stuff, 
it wouldn't be an efficient thing for me to be doing to like constantly check has the player done this has the player done this when i when the player's on the fortress i have to assume that they've beaten the sort of encounter that would trigger the countdown i don't want to say at the start of every single room on the fortress has the player done this yet because that would just be unnecessary overhead um even a little bit worse i had one door inside the fortress um which was locked it was just decorative it just says airlock and it's in a room where you have to um where there are other locked doors but you go up to a terminal and it unlocks the doors well what i didn't realize is that it actually unlocked every door on the level including the one that's supposed to stay locked right. and it looks like it's locked from the outside that never changes the player walks up to it though and they realize that it's open that door has a default value of the debug room in the game um where i did all the original testing for the ai and stuff so you could go into that uh door you pop out in the debug level um the game at this point thinks you've stopped playing the campaign and have switched over to something else um because it just so happens that like if you go into this debug room and then leave the debug room it takes you to a different level in the game which is the first challenge mode and when you start the challenge mode the game thinks that you're uh like first of all nothing loads because mm. the game doesn't anticipate that you're supposed you're not supposed to be there it um it, well at least now it has loaded because of the way i've changed around the loading state um you end up in the challenge level you beat the challenge level and then the game um still thinks you're playing the campaign because just because you've started the challenge level doesn't automatically mean that you're playing challenge mode. You're still playing campaign mode. But yet you've just beaten the challenge level and when you beat the challenge level the thing boots you over to the congratulations screen. The congratulations screen looks at which mode are we in? Are we in challenge mode or are we in campaign? Well, you beat the challenge level but you're in campaign mode, so congratulations, you beat the game in 30 seconds. Wow. Yeah, so that's that was a ridiculous exploit that somebody uh, found for me just by messing around in the game, and then I obviously went in and patched it so that like 1.02 I think had that exploit still in it, but the modern version that's up on Steam now uh, doesn't have that anymore. Obviously, so the do you do you name the patches after the people that find them, like finding a star <laughs> in the sky? No, um, I I don't know specifically if the person. Um, wants me to say who it was that uh, found it, but he's in the credits otherwise because he was a backer on Kickstarter. So yeah, it was just, you know, my, my personal experience with trying to make things efficient and trying to have these like default values and things that are supposed to be locked and all these kind of things. And because I wasn't careful enough, it led to this like really interesting, um, I, I was actually like overjoyed. It's like, awesome. I have a triple A bug in my game. You know, this is crazy. You're up to the big time now. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's one of those things where like that, these are the, these are the kinds of things that, um, speedrunners can exploit, you know, with these, um, things that are not intentional. Like obviously Zarnok Fortress was designed to be speedrun, but in a like actual sense in terms of like it, it you i wanted the game to be fast to play through i didn't want the game to be 
completed via exploit, but you know, that version of the game exists on disc still. So if people wanted to trigger it as a like crazy way of getting through the game, then uh, I think it's it's still a fun thing to have as 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 part of like a previous version of the game. Do you know uh, the fastest speed run time for Zarnock Fortress? Um, the fastest like real speed run time, it varies based on what the difficulty of the game is, but I mean, I can beat the game in about 20 minutes. All right. And that's without the crazy exploit. The funny thing is, is that, yeah, like actually um, doing this exploit requires going to a part of the game, uh, which overall, like from start to finish, takes longer to do than just beating the game legitimately. Mm. But because the timer is reset when you start the challenge room, that will make your score on the leaderboard register as like 30 seconds. Oh, that's all kinds of dirty. Yep. Well, that is going to do it. Our deep dive on coding, glitches, speed running, variables, breaking the sequences. I learned a lot. I hope you did too. My name has been Matthew Falvey, and it will continue to be. You can find me on Twitter at GameThinkTalk or on YouTube at a 90s kid. And you can find me on Twitter at Bluish Green Pro to learn all about my new and upcoming projects. Bye for now. Cool. Interesting stuff.